All right, well, how we doing? Good, good. Awesome. Well, hey, my name is uh, Tyler Durham. I'm one of the young adult pastors here at Christ Chapel, and uh, it's a privilege to be launching this new sermon series. It's a three-week series in the book of Romans. So if you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 6. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, we've got Bibles right under you in the seat, or we'll have it up on the screen. But uh, we're going to be diving in in these next three weeks to Romans chapter 6. And Romans is honestly one of the most important books in the Bible. If you really want to know what the gospel's about, if you really want to know what it means to grow as a Christian, the book of Romans is where you should begin. In fact, there's two historical figures in church history, Martin Luther and John Wesley. Martin Luther was a Catholic monk who uh, nearly killed himself trying to earn his favor with God. And uh, he was constantly beating himself up and thought that it was his works that would make him right with God. And then one day he started studying the book of Romans in the original language in Greek, and it turned his life upside down. And then fast forward a few hundred years, there was a guy named John Wesley, and he was a famous pastor in America and in England, and he was a minister and was unconverted, was not a Christian. And so he heard this Bible study one night. He was once again, just like Martin Luther, wrestling with how to become a Christian, how to be saved. And he heard them doing a Bible study in the book of Romans and he gave his life to Christ and he said his heart was strangely warmed. It's an amazing book. We're going to spend three weeks in one chapter and you might think that's crazy, but John Piper preached 252 sermons from the book of Romans. Um, another famous pastor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, 14 volumes of his sermons on Romans. It is a theologically rich book. But Martin Lloyd-Jones said the key to understanding the book of Romans is Romans chapter 6. And so that's what we're going to dive in tonight. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to read verses 1 through 11. So follow along with me. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? This is Paul talking to the church in Rome. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Father God, what a great privilege for myself and Ben in these next three weeks to preach through this amazing chapter. Um, what a great privilege to encourage your people, 
those who've put their faith in Jesus Christ to persevere and to continue on and to fight against the sin in their lives. And what a great privilege to preach the good news of the gospel to people who have never met you and know nothing about this grace that we talk about. Lord, I pray that tonight you would prepare um, everyone's hearts and minds that are in here to receive your word. Lord, whatever's true that I say tonight, may it stick May it pierce their hearts and souls, and whatever I say that is off the mark, may it just move on and move past them. But Lord, tonight, may you be glorified in this time together, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So what makes Christianity different from every other religion in the world? What what makes this, this one movement started by a carpenter who never wrote a book who didn't have this massive following while he was here and in fact died on a cross, what makes Christianity so different than every other religion? And it's one thing, it's, it's, it's grace. What makes Christianity different than everyone else is that every other religion says we've gotta do certain things to climb the ladder to God. That God is this holy God that's transcendent and if we wanna be made right with God, we've gotta do these certain steps and then hopefully, we're made right with God. Hopefully. In Christianity, salvation and being made right with God is 100% God's work. We contribute nothing to salvation in our lives. God extends this gift of grace to us, and we just say, I believe, I accept. It's, it's a radical message that looks different than every other religion. And, and because of that, a lot of people criticize Christianity. They say, oh, that, that sounds great. That's really convenient that you're, you're saved by grace alone. I guess now you can live however you want to live. I guess because you're saved by grace, you can just do whatever you want. God will forgive you. You've got your get-out-of-jail-free uh, card. You're going to heaven What keeps you from doing whatever you want to do in this life? I've thought about it in my own life. If if I've been forgiven of all my sins, past, present, and future in Jesus Christ, what motivates me to live a life that's pleasing to God? What keeps me from living a life of sin? If you're a non-believer in this room, I'm sure you've seen Christians that profess one thing and they live a different way, and it's frustrating to see that because they just say, oh, but I, you know, God will forgive me. So Paul is dealing with this very exact thing. And we're going to go through that tonight. And Paul's going to give us an answer to that. And so if you're um, taking notes or following along with me, there's, there's four different sections I want to talk about tonight. And the first section is Paul's answer to that charge. The second section is the illustration that he gives to back it up. And he does that in verses three through five. And then number three, he gives an explanation. He tells us why he believes that that's not a legitimate critique of Christianity. And number four, the application. He's gonna tell us in verse 11 how this can start changing our lives on a day-to-day basis. So we're just gonna walk through that in these 11 verses and I hope it blesses you like it's blessed me. But let's jump right into number one, the answer. So look with me at verses one and two. It says, Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And in verse two, he says, by no means. Absolutely not. That is crazy. How can we who died to sin still live in it? 
And so in order to understand this passage, you've got to understand what's going on before. And in chapter 5, and in fact, in, in Romans 1 through 5, he's telling us who we are in Christ and what Christ has done for believers. It's all about what Christ has done. It's all about grace. And in Romans chapter 5, verses 18 to 21, it says this. It says, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, and that one trespass is Adam, Adam's sin by eating of the fruit of the tree, that led to condemnation for all men. So one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. That act of righteousness was Jesus' death on the cross. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now listen to this in verse 20. Here's the problem with Christianity. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. He's talking about the Old Testament law. Like they didn't realize what they were doing until God established these laws and then they're like, oh crap, we're a lot worse than we thought. So the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So it says there, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. And so the argument was, the argument that Paul was addressing was, well, if that's the case, then maybe I should just sin more so that God's grace looks even better. Maybe I should just do whatever I want, and whenever you know, I sin and disobey him, his grace will come in and save the day, and then everybody looks at his grace and goes, man, what an awesome God. But Paul says, may that never be. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? So I, I, I want to use this board, and this is kind of going to be something that I use next week as well. But hopefully this helps you understand this chapter, because it can get confusing. But before faith in Christ, the head of our lives, the head of the human race, is Adam. And Paul talks about that in, in chapter 5. Adam's sin, his disobedience, was, was credited to all mankind. That because of his one man's disobedience, all of us became sinners. So we're all born into sin because our head, the head of the human race, is Adam. And who's our master? If, if, if Adam is the head, who's our master? Paul says our master is sin. And the result of this situation is death. And so every human being born into this world is born into this category with Adam as, as the head. Sin is their master. They're slaves to sin, Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1. And the result of a life of disobedience and sin is death. Not only physical death, but eternal death. But Paul says, we have died to sin. And so I want to take a moment and I want, to, I want to break it down. What does it mean that we have died to sin? It says here in verse 2, By no means how can we who died to sin still live in it? So here's the deal. We died is, is in the Greek is the aorist tense, which means it was a one-time event that happened in the past in the believer's life. So when a believer puts their faith in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross, spiritually, we died with Christ. We, we see it every time we see someone baptized. We were buried with Christ, 
raised to walk in newness of life. So we have died with Christ, which means sin no longer is our master. Sin no longer has power to us because we're dead to sin. It's like if you, if you go to a cemetery, do you think those people in the graves are struggling with sin? Do you think sin has power over those people? No, they're dead to sin now. And Paul's saying as Christians, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we're no longer slaves to sin. We've been set free from that. Sin is no longer our master. So how could we continue to live in it? The moment you become a Christian, you are no longer under the power and reign of sin. Sin is no longer your ruler. Sin no longer dictates what you do in your life. Sin no longer has you enslaved. You are set free from sin as a believer. But here's the problem. It's kind of like George W. Bush gets criticized even to this day for the Iraqi war in 2003. And... uh, What happened was about two weeks after the war started, I think two or three weeks, we declared victory. Some of y'all might remember that image where he's on the aircraft carrier and behind him it says, mission accomplished. Okay, so technically, did they dethrone Saddam Hussein? Yes or no? Yes. He was dethroned, you know, the, the image of the statue being knocked down. He was dethroned. But were battles still going on after the victory over Saddam Hussein? Absolutely, to this day. It's the same thing here. We have dethroned sin in our lives through faith in Jesus Christ, but sin still pops up. Sin still tries to pull us back to that old life. Sin still is trying to fight these little skirmishes in our life, even though it doesn't have the same power that it had before. Why on earth will we keep living in that and putting ourselves under that kind of bondage? So he transitions and he gives an illustration of what he's talking about. So look with me at verses three through five. It says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that, so what was the purpose of that? Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For we have been united with him in a death like his. We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now for us Christ Chapelites and some of you that maybe have grown up in in a similar context, this idea of of baptism being the means of of dying and living in Christ can kind of raise some red flags. Like, wait a minute. Baptism is how we're, we're made right with God? Baptism, this act that we do, is what... It justifies us before God. That's not what he's saying. All you have to do is read chapters one through five. When, when New Testament writers are talking about baptism, oftentimes they're saying baptism to represent the whole process of conversion. Because baptism is that, that final declaration that's, that's visible to all the church that you are a follower of Christ. So they shorten going through this long process of repentance and faith and, and all the things that go with that, and they say baptism. So Peter at one place says, repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And he doesn't say believe in Jesus. Well, when they say baptism, it's, it's really implying that you've already put your faith in him internally, and baptism is the external visible sign of that. John Stott, a famous pastor and commentator says the New Testament attributes to the visible sign the blessing of the reality that it signifies. 
the New Testament attributes to the visible sign, which is the act of baptism, buried with Christ, raised to walk in newness of life, the reality of what it signifies in your heart. Just like my wedding ring signifies what's taken place in my covenant with my wife. So here's what it looks like now. Faith in Jesus Christ means dead to sin and means you have a new head who is Christ, which the New Testament, ironically, not on accident, calls the new Adam. And we're a new human race and sin is no longer our master, but righteousness is our master. And so Paul's gonna go on in chapter six and say, you're no longer a slave to sin, you're now a slave to righteousness. You've been set free from sin, so now you can live in this new humanity of which Christ is the head. And what's the result of that? Eternal life. Or what Paul says here, newness of life. Newness of life. Guys, this is, this is so important if you want to grow in your Christian life. This is so important if you're considering taking that step of faith to be a follower of Christ. Because what Paul is saying is a radical transformation, a reorienting of your whole existence. Where before, you're in this scenario, and after, Jesus is now the head of this new humanity, and righteousness is now the thing that you do, and it's leading to eternal life. It's leading to a newness of life. So once again, going back to Paul's question, if we've died to this, why on earth will we keep living as if this is true? Paul's saying, you don't even understand what the gospel is if you're even asking that question. If I'm preaching the gospel and you're like, well, wait a minute, if it's free, if all I have to do is trust in what Jesus has done for me, well, that means I can sin all I want. You're acting as if sinning all you want is a good thing. When the Bible says clearly, sinning all you want will lead to death, but living a life of holiness and righteousness leads to eternal life. Praise God, through Jesus, we, have, we now have the ability and the privilege to live this new, amazing life in him. And so Paul uses baptism as an illustration. I love doing baptisms. Because you talk to the person, you say, have you put your trust in Jesus Christ? And they say, absolutely, I've put my trust in Jesus Christ. Well, based on your public profession of faith, I baptize you, my brother or sister, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, buried with Christ in baptism, dying to this life, raised to walk in newness of life. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, I am a new creation in Christ. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Brothers and sisters, if you have put your trust in Jesus Christ, you are a new creation. Set free from all of the baggage of your old life. Set free from all the sin that was done to you and the sin that you did against others is no longer held over you because Jesus paid for that. It has been paid for, it has been bought with a price, and you are no longer a slave to sin. You are now a slave to righteousness, set free to live a life of freedom and joy and contentment in your new head who is Jesus Christ. That is the Christian life. And yet so many people who profess to be Christians still struggle with this. They keep wanting to go back to the old life. And so Paul has to explain even more. And so he goes on, number three, the explanation. Verses six 
to 10. Y'all follow with me. It should be up on the screen. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, which means done away with, not eliminated. Sin is still kind of creeping up, but it's done away with as a authority in your life so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now we have died with Christ. We believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Guys, this is, this is amazing. This is our old, what the, in the Greek, it's, it's called the old man. But you can just translate this, the old self. What it's talking about is the old man or woman who was under this reign. And what Paul's saying is this old self, this old self has been crucified with Christ. Our old self has died with Christ. Our old self is no longer who we are. We are now, we, we've, raised, we've been raised spiritually with Christ to live a new life. And Paul says, now we live in the new self, the new man. So this is who we are, guys. If you have trusted in Christ, this is you. Adopted, forgiven, cleansed, set free from sin. No longer is your past held against you. You are now a part of the family of God and the Father, God the Father, is your, your Father. Jesus is your friend. Jesus is your advocate. You, you have no condemnation in your new self that's been recreated through faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And yet, we let sin creep up and we let the remnants of our old man start to discourage us. You're You're worthless. Abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, sexual immorality, lying, stealing, cheating, gossip. Maybe you were in high school and you were you know, not the popular kid. You were insecure and defensive and, and afraid and fearful and anxious. And Paul's saying, this is no longer you. Because of what Jesus has done, you are now a new person. Don't let that define you. Why on earth would you want to go back? Hey, I'm, I'm saved. Now I can go back and keep sinning. Why would you want to do that? When you're set free to live a life of utter joy in worship and glory to the Father. Powerful, powerful stuff. So this idea of the old self is... The person you once were. Uh, one one uh, commentator says, Our old man is the old self or ego, the unregenerate man in his entirety, in contrast with the new man as the regenerate man in his entirety. It's not just a part of you that died, it's your whole old self that died. You're completely new. Martin Lloyd Jones says, The vital distinction between the old self 
and, and the body of sin that, that Paul talks about is the distinction between I myself as a whole personality and my body. You yourself as a whole personality have died and risen again with Jesus to live a new life. As a Christian, you, me, my truest self really seeks God and loves his law and holiness. The essence of Tyler now loves God and loves to pursue his holiness, even when I fall into sin. The real me loves that. While sin remains in me with a lot of strength, it is no longer controlling my personality in life. It's still able to lead me to disobey God, but now sinful behavior goes against my deepest self-understanding. My identity has radically changed when I put my faith in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. When a non-Christian sins, they're doing what they know to do because they're still living according to this old way. They, they don't know any different, which is why Christians shouldn't judge non-Christians. They don't have anything else, anything else in them that's telling them not to do it. They're living according to, to their nature, their essence. They have a sinful nature that they inherited from Adam. But we as Christians, when we sin, we're not being consistent. We're not being our truest selves. And so we turn away from that and say, Lord, I'm gonna pursue you because I am a new creation and that's not who I am anymore. And I'm not going to let that pull me down. Praise God. So he kind of summarizes that in verse 10. But then finally, the fourth point, the application, verse 11. This is awesome. So he says in verse 11, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So he just got through talking about who Jesus is and what he did. Jesus died once and for all for sin. Jesus defeated death on the cross. And how do we know that? Because he's no longer in the grave. He's in his resurrected body. And all of that is ours because we're united to Christ by faith. And everything he has is ours. And all of our sin is his. And he took it on the cross and paid for it. So now spiritually we've been made new. And one day when Jesus returns, we will receive our new resurrection body to live in the new world that he creates. We've got so much to look forward to. And Paul says, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Think about yourself as dead to sin and alive to God. Meditate about who you are as dead to sin and alive to God. Reckon yourself dead to sin and alive to God. As Jesus reckoned himself dead to sin on the cross and is now living and reigning alive in holiness towards God. So one of my favorite movies is called uh, is Shawshank Redemption. And y'all, it's a great movie, awesome movie. Um, there was one guy in the movie, he was an old man. He uh, became buddies with the main character, Andy. And the old man's name was Brooksy. He'd been in prison for nearly 50 years. And his buddies in the prison thought, you know, I think, he'd been, I think he's been institutionalized. Like, he, he was up for parole and they were scared because they didn't know how he was going to do when he got out of prison. So the day came and they let him out of prison and he was free. No more bars in front of his eyes. Free. You, it's all yours. Go do what you want. What happened? What happened to him? 
he, he, he was trying to find ways to break his parole so that he could go back to where he was comfortable, guys. He was comfortable in prison with the master, the warden, telling him what to do and, and, and controlling his life. And when he was finally set free, he didn't even know how to live in that freedom. So he was just like, I, I want to go back. He couldn't go back, so he killed himself. Here's the deal, guys. We have all of this freedom and joy in front of us that is ours in Christ if you put your faith in Christ. And yet, some of us are scared to death to walk into that freedom and out of that old life. Because in fact, you've been so identified by your old life. Maybe you're identified as the person who um, is depressed all the time, and that has become your identity. And the, the thought of, of actually overcoming that oddly scares you because it's become comfortable, the routine of living in the prison of sin and anxiety and fear. And God's saying, you're free. And you're saying, but I kind of want to go back to the way things were. So Paul's saying, why would you want to do that when all of this is for you? Why would you want to live in the past when you have so much ahead of you in the future? Life and godliness and holiness and righteousness and eventually a new resurrection body to live with God's people on the new heavens and new earth, rejoicing. What is that thing in your life that's part of your old self that you've actually clung to and like to be identified in that way? Are you willing tonight to let it go? Are you willing tonight to let that go and become identified 100% with Jesus Christ and let him begin to rebuild and reshape who you are as the new person? And so a lot of Paul's teachings are really be who you are. Be who you are. If you're in Christ, be who you are. If you're sinning, that's not who you are anymore. If you're sleeping with your girlfriend, stop it. That's not who you are anymore. You don't have to do that. You're not a slave to those passions and desires anymore. Stop being who you once were. Be who you are now. Once again, Martin Lloyd-Jones says it well. He says, you can still be a slave experientially, even when you are no longer a slave legally. And if you're a Christian, you have been set free legally in the courtroom. God has declared you not guilty. And yet experientially on a day-to-day -day basis, you can still be living under that condemnation and that burden when Jesus died for you and paid for that. You no longer have to live under that condemnation. He says, whatever you may feel, whatever your experience may be, God tells us here through his word that if we are in Christ, we are no longer in Adam. We are no longer under the reign and rule of sin. And if I fall into sin as I do, it is simply because I do not realize who I am. Realize and reckon it. Remember who you are. One pastor says, once we grasp this, that our old life has ended with the score settled, the debt paid, and the law satisfied, we shall want to have nothing more to do with sin when we're thinking correctly about who we are now in Christ. The battle's in the mind, guys. What's Paul's application? 
Start thinking about yourself according to the way God thinks about you and the way God sees you. Holy cow. God sees me way better than I see myself. I need to start getting my thoughts about myself in line with God's thoughts about myself because God sees me united to Christ by faith. So the bottom line is, Paul says, may it never be. Keep sinning so that grace would abound? That doesn't even make sense. You, you got everything ahead of you. You got it all. Why would you even consider that question? If you're in here and you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, the only sin you will conquer is the sin that's been canceled. The only sin in your life that you will conquer is the sin that's been canceled. The only sin that we can defeat in our life is the sin that's already been forgiven. So you can, you can read every self-help book. You can go to every seminar. You can try as hard as you can. You can have the perfect genetics of a good moral family. And you can have all of the things going your way. But you will not live a life pleasing to God. You will not defeat the sin in your life until you put your faith and be united to Jesus Christ. Then you will start to experience victory over the burdens and the addictions and the sin in your life. Not perfect. We all still struggle, but that oppressive power is released from you. You no longer have to live under it. Colossians 2.12, Paul says, And you who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The debt has been paid, and we are free to live a life of victory. I want to close with probably uh, one of the most famous hymns in church history. It was written by John Wesley's brother, Charles Wesley, in the mid to late 1700s. How Can It Be is the name of the hymn. Some of y'all maybe have grown up in Baptist churches and sang it. But listen to this. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but listen to this. This is the first stanza. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me who him to death pursued amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? And then the fourth stanza, this is amazing, guys. Listen to this. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flame with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. And then finally, the last stanza, no condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. What would happen in our ministry and in the city of Fort Worth if Believers would start reckoning themselves dead to sin, chains fallen off, set free to live a life 
of holiness and love towards each other, we would transform the city. Praise God. What an amazing message from Paul in Romans 6. Let's pray together. Father God, we love you. Oh, I hope that tonight people leave happy, happy in the Lord. Happy that they're, all of the, the negative self-talk and all of the pain and hurt from the past no longer has to define them in Christ. That we have all the privileges of being your very one and only son because we have been united to Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that for all of us in here, including me, that we would begin to aggressively reckon ourselves, think about ourselves as dead to sin and completely alive, moving forward into the future, walking in newness of life. Even as Jesus today and his resurrected body is living in resurrection life. We have that right now. The only thing we're waiting for is our resurrection body, which Jesus has promised. And what's the evidence of that? His body's gone. May it never be that we misuse your grace to go on living and playing in the mud when you've given us a a vacation at the sea, like C.S. Lewis says. And if there's anyone in the room tonight who is feeling their heart warmed as, as John Wesley's heart was warmed when people were talking about Romans, I pray that they would take that step of just receiving and calling out to you in faith and saying, Lord, save me and change me and make me a new creation. Pray that you would seal their salvation tonight to your glory and praise. Amen.